good morning. It is so exciting to be with you guys again. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Chris Colquitt. Uh, I'm going to be the new senior pastor here in what is rapidly approaching, and, and, and it's scary because the boxes have not been packed yet, but um, it is such a joy to get to come here uh, in this spring season to see the beautiful Charlottesville spring. It's supposed to snow tomorrow in Chicago, so <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a treat. Before I start, you guys are going to have a, a chance later this month to say thank you to Mike Sherritt, and I won't be here, and so I just want to do that briefly, um, publicly, before you guys. I, I hope you know how thankful you should be for Mike. Mike has walked into a church he knew was going to be a hard season for him to lead, and he has done that with tremendous grace and wisdom and with the love of Jesus. He is an inspiration to all of us. That's how we ought to be. When we see places in need and challenges, we walk into those things. We don't run away from them because that's what Christ did for us. More personally, Mike has become very quickly a dear friend, a father in the faith, and a counselor that I, I hope and trust will, will be such for many years to come. So, Mike, thank you. Um, Y'all thank Mike. Give him a hug. said this to Mike on the staff retreat, uh, but I'll say it here. It, Mike's technically been the interim pastor, um, but I really hope that when you guys talk about the history of Trinity, uh, Mike fits right in there with all the great pastors who have sat in this pulpit and cared for this church. So, And, and one more thing, speaking of interims who aren't going to be interims anymore, uh, I just want to celebrate Kelly Scott and uh, the news that went out earlier this week. Um, I, is she here? I don't know. He may have left. That's cool. Um, anyway, I am, I am just thrilled uh, and really just so thankful that Kelly's willing to, to come and, and join this team. He and Jesse and I are going to have a fun time and um, really grateful. Okay. In these two opportunities this month and last to be with you guys, what I've wanted to do is to go to the book of Ephesians and to look at Paul's prayers that he offers for the church to try to learn something as this is a season of prayer for me, for you guys, as a season of preparation about what God is up to in the life of the church and the life of Trinity. Um, in the month of May, uh, we're going to use this little mini-series I've been doing as a jump off into another small mini-series to get us to summer as we'll look at Ephesians 4. Uh, Jesse will do a lot of that. Kelly and I will help out as well. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. And one brief note as we do, I've skipped 3, 1 through 13. That's not because it's unimportant. It's not because there's something controversial there I'm trying to hide from. It's a wonderful text. 
But as you'll see if you have your Bibles open, it's, it's a digression. Paul begins in verse 1 of chapter 3 to say something. He says, for this reason. And then he goes off on a tangent, which I really respect about Paul. I, I think it's a Pauline thing to go out on a tangent, which is great. But he comes back to his point in verse 14. And so I want us to read it uh, without the t- digression, simply so that we can see the connection that is being made. It's Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, and the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, what a joy and privilege it is to gather this morning as your people. Lord, these verses in Ephesians speak of the magnificent spiritual reality of this gathering right now. We pray that as we attend to these words that you would be with us, Lord. We couldn't know you if you didn't reveal yourself to us. You've done that in all of creation, but you've done it savingly in your word and through your son. And so we ask now you to help the Holy Spirit who breathed these words out. Would you be with us? Would you be with me to speak clearly and truly and boldly? And would you be with all of us to see and treasure Christ our Savior? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, our text this morning invites us to consider the nature and life of the church, what it is that we are doing here, and to begin dreaming together about what that looks like at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. That's really exciting. I, I feel like uh, a newly dating uh, person, just I want to tell you everything I think about everything. Y'all remember that when you, when you like talking to your spouse? Um, <laughs> And, and this, this text, I did this on purpose, obviously. I get to choose what we're going to preach on. Um, this text invites us into magnificent spaces as we think about the life of this church, as we think about what it is to gather here this morning. Trinity is a unique church with a unique context and a unique history. And that context and history points to unique gifts and opportunities and challenges that we face in our place. The same could be said of Charlottesville, the city in which we live. 
And that makes for an extremely exciting place to do ministry. This is a special place we get to be. This is a special church we get to be in. My week as I arrived on Wednesday night has been filled basically with sitting in coffee shops having incredibly interesting conversations. Y'all, I remember this from law school, y'all don't realize how interesting you guys are. It's really cool. Like you, I get to have like one conversation a month that's as interesting as one of the eight that I had in coffee shops around Charlottesville this week. It's a special place. This church, it's kind of weird to say as a pastor, this is a dream job. This is, this is as good as it gets to come live in Charlottesville and, and preach to Trinity Presbyterian Church. It's awesome. This is a special place in a special city. But this morning, as we look at the life of the church, as we orient ourselves to God's design for the church, my hope is that we're going to see that as exciting and unique and special as Charlottesville is and our place in it, God's ordinary vision for the church, the vision for the church that exists here and in every other city around the world today is way more exciting, way more dynamic, and way more special. This is a special church, not because of Charlottesville, not because of its history, but because this is a holy temple of the Lord, a dwelling place for God, built by the Spirit a spirit who strengthens us in our hearts, in our inner beings, so that Christ himself, the second person of the Trinity, might dwell within us. That's the sermon in a sentence. We'll get a little more. That's why Trinity is special, okay? And that's what I want us to see this morning. Uh, for our outline, I'd like to frame this as something of an orientation, maybe a safety demonstration. Chris and I are going to hop on a plane later this evening. Uh, and you know, they're going to pop up and tell us where we are, what we're there for, what happens if something goes wrong. And, and we'll follow something like that as we strap ourselves into these orange seats uh, that have been here for quite some time. Uh, and, and as we strap ourselves into the life of the church, I want to orient ourselves, use Paul's words here to do that. So four points to this sermon. I gave you two last time, so you, you, you owed me one. Um, where you are, how it works what to know and how to act. Where you are this morning, you showed up, good job. How it works, what's going on here, what you need to know, and how you need to act in the life of the church. And Paul's words here help us to do all of these things. So first, where are we? What's going on here? Um, who are we? And Paul, Paul in this text says something um, there's a lot of remarkable claims in the scriptures. This is, one of the, this is one of the top of the list. Because the answer to where we are right now and who we are is that you and I, this morning as we gather together, are dwelling in the presence of God, the special presence of God. God himself dwells among us in this room. This gathering of decent-looking folks in a lovely but somewhat outdated 70s-era sanctuary is... <laughs> is the sight of God's special presence on the earth, on par, and actually better than, we're going to see, the glory cloud of God that led the people of Israel through the wilderness. That's what's going on here. You got squirmy kids, you look kind of nice, there's lots of khaki, right? This is that. Sitting on these chairs this morning, you are as close to the special presence of God as anybody has been 
since the Garden of Eden, and anybody will be until the end of this age. Now, how can that be? We need to do a little bit of biblical theology here. We need to talk a little bit about the temple. That's what Paul says that we are. And uh, a plug here, David Turner is teaching a Sunday school class right now. He, he did a wonderful job doing a biblical theology of the kingdom this morning. Um, I someday would love to teach a Bible st- a Sunday school on the uh, biblical theology of the temple, and it would be, it'd be long and it'd be great. Uh, but my wife has convinced me this needs to be brief, so you can thank her for what follows. But it's important and really one of the coolest things in the Bible, okay? So, uh, and if you, wanted, if you want to double-click on this, a guy whose published name is G.K. Beale, Greg Beale, um, has written some incredible stuff on the temple um, and its relation to the church. Okay, so, so this is what I just claimed, what Paul is claiming, is that this is the special, the special presence of God is here. Now, one question you have is, okay, well, God is everywhere. He said, I learned in Sunday school, God is omnipresent. That's true. God is everywhere. And yet, throughout the course of redemptive history, God reveals himself to his people, specially and in unique times and places and unique space. This first happens in Eden, which is a garden temple. And again, I'd love to go spend an hour thinking about that. Uh, God's presence was specially in the Garden of Eden. And outside was the wilderness. God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But after the fall, we're ejected from God's special presence, partially for our own good, because to be in God's special presence as sinners is to be subject to his wrath. And so we're outside the garden walls. There's guards placed there. The special presence of God seemingly is beyond reach. But in the course of the history of the Bible, God's special presence, he brings it to the people of Israel. He moves towards those who have been ejected from that place. We see this on powerful display in the Exodus as this pillar of cloud, fire, leads the people of Israel through the wilderness and is this representation, this very clear manifestation of God's special presence for his people. And then God tells Moses to build a tabernacle and later tells Solomon to build a temple. And there's these great scenes, both at the dedication of the tabernacle and the temple, where the glory cloud, that thing that was leading them through the wilderness, can you imagine seeing that? That would have been incredible. Sucks down into the Holy of Holies and fills up that space in the tabernacle, in the temple. And now what's really amazing is that this special presence of God, this this pillar of fire, now gets to dwell with the people of Israel as they go through the wilderness and ultimately as they go into the promised land. Now, it's, it's there. It's contained not to protect, not to protect God from us, but to protect us from God. Because again, we couldn't hang out in the garden, but God finds a way to come be with us. And the curtains and the walls and the priests and the sacrifices allow us, allow the people of Israel to have God's special presence mediated to them in the temple. Tracking so far? Okay, so then the people of Israel, as you know, don't do so hot once they get into the, into the promised land. And because of their idolatry and their sin, they're going to be sent into exile. The temple is going to be destroyed. And again, this is where I just wish we could have 30 more minutes. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this incredible vision in Ezekiel chapter 10. Go read it later. 
as, the t- as, as judgment is coming on, on Judah and Israel and, and they're being carried away, the glory of the Lord, that thing that sucked down into the Holy of Holies, a, a chariot full of cherubim swings on down in Jerusalem. The glory literally walks out of the house, gets up, goes to the, goes to the front door, and then walk, hops on the cherubim's chariot and zooms off because the special presence of God has left the people of Israel which is one of the most tragic scenes in the whole Bible. It's gone. People are in exile. The temple is destroyed. And all of the hope of Israel and the prophets is that that might come true. And Ezekiel says it will, that one day the, the, the glory is going to return. But interestingly, when they rebuild the temple, the glory, there's no glory cloud filling the Holy of Holies scene. When does the glory return? I'm almost done, I promise, if I'm boring you. The glory returns first in Jesus who in John 1 we read is God made flesh who tabernacled among us. The presence of God comes in Christ himself. And then as Christ ascends to the throne in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, which we'll celebrate here before too long. Remember what happens at Pentecost? These tongues of fire that hover over the heads of the Christians. And then that's, that's these little mini glory clouds. That's the way to think about that. These little mini pillars of fire in the desert, right? And they're the temples now, and they sucks into them, right? And now they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, is picking up all that imagery when he says that we are the temple of the Lord, the dwelling place of God. The church today is that sight of God's special presence. It has returned. All right, that's, the de- that's a lot. I hope that was interesting. Come to the Sunday school class next, next spring and we'll, we'll, we'll get, dive into it. Here's the key point. When, when Paul says that we are a holy temple and a dwelling place of God, he's making this profoundly massive claim about where we are this morning. This morning, as we gather... We are in the presence of God. We read these Bible stories of God's glory manifested to the people of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We think, I wish I was there. If only I could could see that pillar of fire in the wilderness, I'd believe then. I'd be in awe then. And Paul says, this is better. This is better. Because it's not out there, it's it's here. It's nearer. Or maybe if if we could just approach Solomon's temple... Some of y'all have been to Jerusalem, and, and even going to the, to the ruins of the Western Wall, there's this air of holiness to that place. You can imagine that approach. And Paul says, this is better. Right here, this morning, in this sanctuary, this is better than that. Or maybe, maybe we could walk with Jesus. The Word made flesh. Wouldn't that be Wonderful. And Jesus says that what we have is better. In John 16, he says one of the most striking things ever. He says to the disciples, guys, I'm leaving, and it's better for you. Because when I leave, Pentecost happens. You get the Holy Spirit. Right now, I'm just hanging out with you. Sometimes I run off, and you don't know where I've gone. Right? I'm not going to be hanging out next to you. Now I'm going to be inside of you, dwelling with you through the Spirit. The 
A pillar of fire would be pretty cool. Jesus would be pretty cool to hang out with. Paul says this is, this is more spiritually rich and significant than that. This ordinary gathering of decent-looking people is better than that. We don't need to change the lighting. We don't need to add smoke machines. This, right? As you're experiencing it right now. Now, hallelujah, right? Rejoice. That's amazing. It should also make us ask some questions because I'll be honest. I feel like I'd probably have a better feeling if I saw the pillar of fire than I do on an average Sunday morning walking into a church with a bunch of people, right? Um, maybe you feel that way. So let's keep going. How is this true? Paul says this is true about it. How does it work? Second point. Well, Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 flows directly out of what he just said about the nature of the church. We see that structurally when he comes back to this phrase for this reason. We also see it in the content of the prayer because if you look at verse 19, this prayer has a lot in it and we'll talk about a lot of it, but the very end of this prayer is that, end of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And recognizing the temple realities that Paul's dealing with makes that make complete sense. It's that, it's that scene, right? In Exodus 40, it's that scene. In 1 Kings, it's that scene at Pentecost where, right, God comes on in, right? And we are filled with the fullness of God, with the glory presence of God. Paul says this is what's happening. And now he talks to God about what needs to be done, which is cool. Talking to God, here's what, here's what, God, we need to have happen for this filling up to take place. God knows this. He knows all our needs, but Paul prays it anyway, and that's a good thing. We should do that too. And the thing that Paul prays for first is that God would do something inside of the hearts of the Ephesian Christians, inside of our hearts. Look at verse 18, or 16 and 17. That we be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Now, we could spend a whole sermon unpacking just that sentence. There's a lot of dynamics going on there. But just notice generally that the work of the Holy Spirit is to strengthen us in a way that produces faith. And through that faith, we are united to Jesus. And in our union with Jesus, Christ dwells within us. So the work of the Holy Spirit is always to connect us to Jesus. And that's what Paul is praying here for him to do. And through faith, we become, and this is what's really interesting about this text in a second, we become little mini temples. Christ dwelling in us, individually, joined together to form a holy temple of the Lord, God's dwelling place on this earth. Now here we need to pause as I'm preaching this, I'm thinking this is kind of dense, and I'm sorry, but forgive me. That might happen from time to time in the next few years. Okay, so, um, so there's an important, uh, re, uh, important, there's an observation that many have made about American evangelicalism, which is that we as American evangelicals, and we're, we mostly are, uh, tend to, and certainly have in the last hundred years, focused on the individual realities of the faith have focused on our personal experience of God at the expense of a corporate identity. Um, 
you've certainly been in churches where this is true, and I, I rejoice this morning, as I said on the front row, and this was not true, uh, where they turn the lights down so low you can't see anybody, turn the music up so loud you can't hear anybody, and it's just you and Jesus, right? And that's a picture of a certain understanding of what it means to be a Christian, which is fundamentally about you, and the church is kind of there to mediate some experience for you individually. That's a reality that we all are shaped by, even if we, if we don't think so. Um, now, there's been a healthy reaction to that, and I know you all have heard that at this church, praise God, that Christ didn't just come to save us in isolation. He didn't just come to save you alone. He came to gather a people. Our faith is a faith we hold together. Christianity is not a solo sport. And your identity as a Christian, your individual, only makes sense as part of your identity in the broader body of Christ. That's all good. It's all true. It's all really important. And I know you've heard that because you've been well taught, which is, which is a cause for great rejoicing in my heart. Um, and it's taught in this passage. And yet, and I just want to highlight this because we tend to jump all over the place when we jump from ditch to ditch. Uh, we should be careful not to overcorrect. Because what Paul is saying here is that your individual, your personal relationship with Jesus does matter. It matters a great deal. It's actually the building block of the broader dwelling of God in this place. The first thing he prays for in Ephesians 3 after talking about this amazing corporate reality is the individual reality. The Spirit strengthening us in our inner being, Christ, Christ dwelling in our hearts. And this, this, guys, is how we are the dwelling place of God. Where is God's glory, presence, cloud, thing, in this room right now? It's actually not in some common space here, right? It's, it's, in, the, it's in the inner being, in the hearts of every Christian in this room, where Christ dwells. Your faith, your piety, your union with Jesus, when joined together, creates this place as the dwelling place of God. Okay, um, I love illustrations. This is a really silly one, but silly ones help, help me at least remember. All right, do you all remember Gushers? Evidently, Gushers still exist. Gushers for the, there's a, there's a certain millennial zone, which is where I live in my imagination, uh, that will know this. A Gusher, for those of you who don't know whether you're too young or too old, was a candy, and it still is, I think, but, but not easy to find. Uh, it was like a fruit candy, but inside was, was something, liquid. <laughs> And what that something was is still not entirely clear to me. <laughs> but the experience of chewing on a gusher, which is just disgusting, is, is to have something squirt into your mouth as you, as you chew it, right? It's a gusher. That's, that's, what, it, that's what it is. Okay. Um, you as an individual Christian are a gusher, all right? That's, that's the point. Um, Christ dwells within you. There's, there's, there's little... Uh, liquid Christ inside of you that, that squirts out. <laughs> the church is what happened in almost every bag of gushers that I ever opened, which is, do y'all remember this? They all are stuck together. And if you're, if you're really adventurous, you pop the whole wad of gushers into your mouth, <laughs> and it's just an explosion of unknown liquid. <laughs> That's the picture, Okay. How is it that Christ dwells among us? How is it that this is God's dwelling place? We're a bunch of gushers in whom Christ dwells, stuck together in the bag, um, living out and manifesting God's presence in this place. All right? Hopefully that's helpful. Um, one application here before we move on is that your personal relationship with Jesus 
matters a great deal. And it's fundamental to our corporate life together. As you are being formed into the image of Christ, as you are growing more like Christ, as you are growing closer to Christ, you are contributing to God's dwelling place in this community. Don't neglect that. Don't neglect public worship, for sure. But also don't neglect your personal relationship with Jesus. I think we know this. I'm I'm sure you could think of, I hope you can think of, uh, and sadly, it seems like an exception sometimes in a church. Shouldn't be, won't be, actually isn't. can you think of that person that you talk to every Sunday or every couple Sundays and you, and you, or you hear them in a Bible study or in a small group and you're like, that, that person really believes in Jesus, right? Mike, share it. Like, that guy really believes in Jesus. And, and to, to have a conversation with Mike or Diane and to, and, to, and to feel the godliness of this person, you say, God is present in this place. That's what we're to be to one another, squirting out our gusher and dwelling of Christ. Okay. All right, so where are we? We're in the special presence of God, better than the glory cloud of pillar of fire in the wilderness. That's where we are. How does that happen? How does that work? Well, it exists, it exists because Christ dwells in our hearts through faith by the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now move, Paul moves on to pray that we would know some stuff. What do you need to know? You've strapped yourself into the orange chair. What, what's What's worth knowing? And let's look here at verse 17 to 19. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So Paul prays for the Ephesians to know two things, for God to reveal that, for them to know that. And the two things are the the breadth and length and height and depth, and the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, at this point, I'm going to upset a few of you, I know, because I'm going to, I'm going to say something that's not going to be the way you've always read this passage. Um, people don't know what to do with the breadth and length and height and depth. It just sits there in the Greek. That's how it is. Um, but one way to read it, and it's not a bad way to read it, it's just not the best way, I'm going to say, uh, is what the NIV actually translates. So if you have the NIV, here's how the NIV reads this, that you may have power together with all the Lord's people, holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So you see what they did? They, they take the love idea, which is right there, and they plug it into the length, breadth, height, depth thing, which is, which is great. It's true. Um, but... And there's worship songs that are based on that reality, right? How deep, how wide. It's wonderful. That is, you can say that and sing that truly. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here, though. And I'm going to argue for that for just a second and then try to say why that's a good thing. Um, if we recognize the temple realities that Paul is playing with, if we read our Old Testament and think about where the temple is described, one of the things we'll find is that every time the temple is described, and this also happens in Revelation when the temple is described, do you know what comes next? A bunch of measurements. The, this is this wide. This is this tall. This is this. This is if you're doing a Bible in a year plan. This is the part you're either excited about because you can skip it, or or you're sad about because you, you're a legalist and you have to like read every single word. Um, I'm the first category. Okay, but that's temples get measured. That's just a thing in the Bible. When you have temples, they get measured. And so what Paul is saying here, I'm. Very sure. But you can argue with me. In the NIV, there are a bunch of smart people who said something else. 
Paul is saying that he wants us, he wants Christians to know the architecture of the temple reality in which they live. The dimensions of this church, of Christ's church, of the dwelling place of God. Christians need to see the blueprint for the thing that we are experiencing. To know the breadth and length and height and depth, then, is to know a few different things about that temple. First, it's to know our templeness. It's to know what we just were talking about. It's to know the deep spiritual significance of this gathering, which is easy to miss. There are a lot of really smart people who will come into this place and say, this is great, this is wonderful. This is an institution, a voluntary institution of people coming together for a common purpose and a common cause. How great. Our society needs more institutions like that. That's true. This is not a sociological reality that we're experiencing in this place. This is a spiritual reality. This is an eternal reality that we experience when we gather as the people of God. This is not a club. This is the dwelling place of God. That's what we believe about this church. We can learn a lot from sociology. We should. We should go to lectures at the Institute. It's wonderful. But ultimately, this is a supernatural reality that's happening here that's fundamentally different than every other club that you join or start. We are sitting in the presence of God among those in whom he dwells. Second, to know the breadth and length and height and depth is to know the extent of the church, the size, and the qualifications for inclusion. Who belongs here and why? Now, this is something the church has always struggled with, and it struggled with in the first century. Paul had just finished in Ephesians 2 talking about the Jew and the Gentile controversies. Paul's making a striking claim that the dimensions, the breadth and length and height and depth, includes the Gentiles, which are the Ephesians. Y'all are part of this building. And when we know the breadth and length and height and depth, we know the extent of the worldwide church across all generations. What is it that qualifies us to be part of this supernatural society? It's one thing. It's one thing. It's Christ dwelling in your heart through spirit-wrought faith that strengthens you to receive him. That's it. Which means that both in a local congregation, in a city of Christians, in a, in a world and across all of time and space, we are united together, though we can be extremely different in every other way. All of those sociological realities that do exist, right, don't need to define the dimensions of our church. We see this when we embody cross-cultural love, when we embody cross-generational love. We see this when we embody cross-politics love. I'm so excited there's an election coming up. That's going to be so great and wonderful for everybody. Um, right? Your neighbor may be entirely wrong about really important policy matters that will affect your life and your children's life. And yet, if Christ is dwelling in them, they belong next to you in this church. We can, we can live together with a bunch of people being wrong about important policy things that matter for this world. Because the thing that brought us here, the thing that qualifies us to be building blocks in Christ's kingdom is Christ dwelling inside of us. As we'll see in a second, the outside parts are a little rough, um, and, and it's important to recognize that. Okay, third thing about the breadth and height and length and depth is to know the final design of the church. When we look at the blueprint and we look at this, we say, okay, this is not that yet. 
Some of y'all will have uh, spent time uh, in the developing world, maybe on a mission trip, and I've found in various places I've been, this is kind of universally true, you'll, you'll notice the houses and buildings, a lot of them have rebar sticking out the top. And why is that? Why do, why do people live in a house with an unfinished second or third story? Well, because they expect to build it someday. And the rebar is going to be much more helpful when they get the resources or when they have the time or when they have the need, when their family grows, to build that second or third story. And that's a picture of what the church is like, right? We are not done. God's design is a design that includes more people than are currently in this place, more people who have been currently gathered to his people. We as a church need to have rebar sticking out of the top. We need to be constantly gathering new gushers to squeeze together or new building blocks to put on top of one another. Um, a healthy church is never finished. There's always work underway. All right. If you're upset with me for taking away verse 18 from you, we'll talk briefly about verse 19 and then finish there. Verse 19 says everything you want it to say. The love of God, the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. Can't say much better than that. Um, it is so high and deep and wide that you can't even understand it. Jonathan Edwards uh, all heaven speculation is mostly speculation. So this is speculation, but I love his speculation. He says, look, heaven, the, the, the love of Christ is such that heaven is going to be a constant learning process, an eternal learning of Christ's love for us so that we will never come to the end of it, which is a really cool thought for people who like learning in a city like this and for a nerd like me. Why do they need the love of Christ? Why do they need to know the love of Christ? Well, because this whole thing only makes sense if Christ has loved us and done the things that we celebrated him doing last week. The only reason that we can be brought into this holy temple is because Christ has qualified us for it, because Christ has died for us, that he has sent his spirit to restore and redeem us and unite us to himself. We are here entirely because of the love of Christ, which is a helpful reminder for that idiot sitting next to you, right? The only reason he's here is because of the love of Christ. We have security because of that, and we can have patience with one another. Okay, lastly, this is last, right? Yeah, okay, sorry, fourth point, how to act. So we're here in the presence of God, gathered as a temple and dwelling place of God. That's really fun. Uh, that happened because Christ dwells in us, the gusher thing, right? What do we need to know? We need to know God's design. We need to know the blueprint. We need to know Christ's love for us. Okay, how do we live now that we're here? Well, the answer is love. And the pattern of Christ's love. Love is fundamental to the life of the church. Paul asks in Ephesians here that they, that they would be rooted and grounded in love in verse 17. And then in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, which begins Paul's instruction, right, here's what he says. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And here we need to lean in and acknowledge that though we as a crowd, uh, the Christians in this room, have Christ dwelling within us in our inner being, there is an outer being too. And Paul uses this contrast between the inner and outer being several different places in Scripture. The outer being is the thing that's suffering in 2 Corinthians 4. And it's a thing that is a slave still, not a slave, but still under the influence of sin in Romans chapter 7. 
the person you're sitting next to, the children you put to bed, the spouse you crawl in bed with at night, um, their work's in progress. There is this internal thing, this reality, which is magnificent, and yet there's rebar sticking out of us, right? Just like the church is a work in progress, we are works in progress, which means that if you get a bunch of rebar sticking out stones and you stick them together, it's not going to always be comfortable. And we're going to have to have something that bonds us together, and that thing is love. The virtues listed in verses 2 and 3 here, on the one hand, we can, we can get familiar with the Bible and think, oh yeah, these are Christian virtues, but read them again and think about what Paul's telling us to buckle up for. All right, Here, all right y'all come hang out together. Now here's what you're going to need. You need humility, you need to not think about yourself, okay? Stop thinking about yourself, all right? You need to be gentle, chill, okay? Because it's going to, he's pokey, all right? Humility, gentle. you're going to have to bear with one another. They're difficult people. You're going to need patience, it's going to take a while. And you're going to need a profound eagerness to maintain the bond, the bond of unity and the spirit of peace, or whatever the heck he says there. This is, this is instruction for a, a difficult journey, right? Squeeze together and buckle up. You're going to need love. The good news is that there's no more beautiful way to live. It's the way Christ lived, and it's the way that we as a church can live and love one another, even though we are crusty, rebar, strewn people who are hard to get along with and have dumb opinions about certain things. We can love one another the way Christ loved us. And in that, we model for the world and for ourselves our future hope. I'll finish with this and then be done, I promise. Um, I think this picture ties some of this together. If it doesn't, just remember the gushers. When um, we had the brilliant idea here, not knowing that we were going to be leaving, uh, to, uh, to do a little work on our kitchen here at the, end of, at the end of the fall of last year. We finally are like, we should do the countertops. This will be great. They need to be done. We can enjoy it. A month later, we decide we're going to Charlottesville. That's not important. It also happened that as we are redoing our countertops, we hosted Thanksgiving for the first time uh, ever. My parents came in town and Kristen hosted Thanksgiving. We hosted Thanksgiving in a kitchen without a countertop, with, with, like, with nails sticking up, with wobbly plywood as this, as this makeshift countertop, hosting a feast. That's what life in the church is like. We gather each week to host a feast in the middle of a construction project. This is the dwelling place of God, but it's also a work in progress. And so we get to look forward to Revelation 21, which is a feast, which is God's presence everywhere. We look forward to that, but now, but now we do it in a kitchen with nails sticking out, with difficult people, but having a feast of love and celebration of our Savior. Let me pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much that this is true. We pray that you would make it true among us. Lord, these are lofty things, and yet they are beautiful and challenging. We rejoice that verse 20 and 21 are true, that you are able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. And we do pray that you would have the glory in this church and in all the churches around the world, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.